It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who are standing a good six feet away from <laughs> you at least, and are not touching your face. Well, I've, yeah. Not touching our face is what's happening. This is also the podcast for pediatricians that are at home and not on vacation right now. Yeah. We, yeah, you were supposed to go on vacation. Yes, I canceled it before it was cool to do so, but only by like a few hours before the location that we were planning on going closed down. <laughs> Such a trendsetter. Yep. My name is Karen Ernst, and I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. Today we are going to be talking about coronavirus, COVID-19, SARS coronavirus 2, because mm-hmm. that's all anyone's talking about. Um, and so it really has squeezed out all other talk of all other infectious diseases the 144 pediatric deaths we've had from influenza have not been noticed which um i -hmm. think in a different year we would be talking a lot about 144 pediatric deaths from influenza this year instead of coronavirus yeah well we had been talking about it quite a bit up until i mean i don't know about the the I don't remember exactly when that number 144 came out, but, um, you know, we've been, we had, we had talked on this podcast about how severe the flu season was and why that was, but man, it's a, it's a double whammy this year. Our last episode, we talked about coronavirus also with Dr. Angela Rasmussen. So mm-hmm. if this is the first time you're ever hearing Vax Talk, go back and listen to that one too, because that's all about the science. This episode, we're going to talk more about messaging and talking with loved ones and talking with the general public about coronavirus and COVID-19 with journalist Tara Haley, who's written a number of really great pieces on the topic. Should we do just a little bit of around the web first? Yeah, I'm going to let you do an around the web and I'm just going to hang back and listen. Okay, so I just want to bring up one thing that I found very interesting that happened. It feels like an eternity ago uh, uh, because it all kind of went down before COVID-19 made it really big here in the United States. But um, on Super Tuesday uh, earlier this month, uh, there was a referendum in Maine that allowed the general public of Maine actually to vote on um, uh, vaccine exemptions for schools. So what happened was a year ago, there was there Maine is one of these states that passed a law that eliminated all non-medical exemptions for vaccines for schools, uh, and, and 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 it passed. And so the anti-vaccine movement managed to get enough signatures uh, to make a a referendum for it which means that it goes on the ballot and people the pot the population votes for whether to keep this law or scrap it and so that was called question one and so there was all the yes on one group uh that wanted to uphold the law and then or wait i'm mixing them up see i'm gonna get it all mixed up anyway no on one (laughs) wanted to uphold the law yes on one wanted to scrap the law so after you know months of these campaigns and this came down to this vote it was a 
three to one vote to keep the law. And I just think that that is such a fantastic thing to pay attention to because it shows how something like how uh, vaccine exemptions are so widely popular. Um, that is not just led, it's not just bought. Um, you know, bought and paid for like legislators and whatnot that the anti-vaccine movement will will say are are passing these laws. These are popular among people. People want there to be strong immunization laws for school, and this referendum is evidence of that. So I really want lawmakers in Iowa and across the country to pay attention to that and realize that this is something that that the people support. Recognizing, of course, Maine does not necessarily represent the whole country, but it is still a a fantastic look at how something like that can it does have support. I I really think it's exciting what happened in Maine, just because it shows that even though the loudest voices tend to be the anti-vaccine voices, the vast vast majority of people really are on the side of wanting children at school to be vaccinated without exception except for medical Mm -hmm. yeah it was kind of interesting to watch the anti-vaccine spin on it because so much of their approach is that they have these numbers and there's so many parents that uh, don't want this and look out they're building their forces and they're growing and then they lose by a considerable margin and then it's just you know oh we were outspent oh the population was low information voters stuff like that no i think people knew what they were voting for they didn't want to take down this law they don't want also measles on that note our quick little around the web i want to introduce our friend and well-respected health journalist Tara Haley. Tara has written for a number of publications, uh, including New York Times and Forbes, and Voices for Vaccines blog, too, most importantly. So welcome, Tara. Hi, thanks for having me. I, I just want to start by you know, noting that you have been a health reporter for a long time. And uh, if people want to look you up, your Forbes site really shows how broad how broadly you've written about not not only vaccines but all sorts of health and parenting things to topics too. But lately, obviously, you've been writing about the pandemic, COVID nineteen, and I'm wondering if you've seen any difference as far as response to the articles you've written lately compared to your regular run of the mill health article. Yes. Um, and, and here's the clearest indication of that. Up until the past few weeks, um, I've been writing for Forbes for about oh, around five or six years. And the highest number of views I had on any single article was, uh, I think it was around a little over 250 to 300,000. It was during the 2016 primaries, the Republican primaries. And it was when Ben Carson mentioned something about vaccines that was not very evidence-based and i basically said all all vaccines are necessary that are recommended and that or that took off because it was you know here we have a neurosurgeon on the stage talking about vaccines in a way that was not evidence-based that was my highest ever article and it was like i said it was around two, somewhere between 250 and 300,000. i haven't looked at it in a while um the article the the first article i wrote on covid 19 was just about the name of it and i was kind of getting into the groove the second article I wrote was about masks. That article currently has nearly 3.6 million views. Holy Hannah. 
Uh, I, it blew my mind. My husband and I just could not wrap our heads around it. And, um, I also have another article up that is about flattening the curve. That one's over a million views. There is a thirst. There's a hunger. There is a desperation for high quality journalism and accurate information about COVID-19 and, and the novel coronavirus. People really, they're, they're anxious and they want good information. And, so that that you know the sheer interest has been one change another thing though is um this is a kind of a nice thing in the current age is i can be very responsive to what people are wanting um one of the more recent articles i wrote was how to convince boomers um or your parents or in general just just people in high-risk groups but particularly older people who who um don't perceive themselves as as frail and they're not frail but they just you know they're older and um a lot of people were having trouble convincing their parents to take the the coronavirus seriously. And I hadn't planned on writing about that, but so many people kept saying it that I, just before leaving my house, I got to coffee shop that day. I posted on Facebook, Hey, is this something you guys would be interested in? And by the time I got to the, the to the coffee shop 15 minutes later, there were 20 something comments saying, yes, yes, yes. And so I was able, I literally started writing that article using the thread as I was going. It was like real time writing with crowdsourcing. And that's not something I typically do. Um, and I've been able to do that with some other posts as well. I can be, you know, really responsive to people on Twitter and on Facebook. And I'm not the only one. One of my colleagues, Melinda, Melinda Winner Moyer, whose, whose work is also fantastic and, and which I recommend, um, she's been doing the same thing where she's crowdsourcing and asking people, what do you want to know? What do you want to hear? What do you want me to cover? and then going out and covering it. So it's it's nice to be able to have that level of responsiveness and hear from people directly, what do you want to hear, and then be able to deliver it to them and make sure that you're, you're helping them. So you've written one on the naming, one on the masks, one on um, like protecting, like talking to your parents and grandparents and other older people about taking this seriously. Any other articles that you've written on COVID-19 that we should be aware of? Um, I've written one on um, why, well, the flattening the curve when I mentioned, I met back before we were down to Biden and Sanders. I wrote mm, about, oh, that's right. I wrote about the plans that different democratic candidates have uh, for dealing with it. And I have one that's 101 ideas to keep your kids busy during coronavirus closures. Um, and the most oh, sure. recent one that, mm -hmm. that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but I, it's so much fun. I just did it for fun. There's this thing going around on Twitter called the 22nd challenge where people video themselves washing their hands for the full 20 seconds that you're supposed to while lathering up with soap and then saying out loud to the video while they're doing it who they're washing their hands to protect and it's it, I, I thought that was really cool <clears throat> so i wrote about that and um this <clears throat> other really cool website called wash your lyrics where you put in a song and it, it generates yes. a pdf <laughs> of you know the hand washing instructions to the lyrics so you don't have to be singing happy birthday and that was fun um and i'm, I'm actually working on yep, six I, other I did stories. that to the Oh, did you? I did that to the lyrics of Portal, and it's really I, I love it. I was. Did you read the article that I wrote? Because I wrote the last line just for you, Nathan. I almost, I almost tagged you in some way on it. Oh, well, now I have to go to the bottom of it. No, yes. of the hand washing one, or which on the one? hand washing what, one. Here, one I'll just this? here. I'll oh, just no. read it to you out okay, loud. Okay, I will find it. I'll read it to you out loud. Okay. It says, "Of course, <laughs> someone had to go there with that song." Do, do you? I'm guessing it's a song that you'll never give up. Yep. <laughs> I appreciated the ones who did I Will Survive, Staying Alive, and No Time to Die. I thought, mm -hmm. yeah, they got the right mm -hmm. idea. The stories I've got in the works. One on pregnancy in the time of coronavirus. 
Uh, one on okay. talking to your kids about mm -hmm. staying home, one about talking to your teens about staying home, and both of those will have mental health angles. Uh, possibly one on a new study about kids themselves um, and, and how it's affecting kids. Um, and then I might do one related to the, the thing going around on ibuprofen. Um, I've, got, I've got quite a few that I'm working on at the same time. So it's all these ones kind of at once. So tell us a little bit about the article about helping parents, grandparents, um, older people understand the, um, the importance of taking the, this advice seriously and doing the social distancing. What advice can we give to that generation? I think the most important thing is not talking down. I mean, it's like talking to kids, right? You don't talk down to them. And I think we, mm -hmm. the, the thing, it, it's a sense of pride. And, and the boomers are, I say boomers because, I mean, that's a wide range of people, but most of the people who are at the highest risk are boomers. Some of them are greatest generation, but most of the people who are greatest generation in their, in their 90s and up, they tend to be already in homes where they're being cared for. So they're, they're not as active and out doing things. Whereas people that are in their, you know, upper 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, a lot of them are still super active, and they don't see themselves as frail or at risk. And they're not frail. I mean, they're sailing, they're teaching exercise classes, they're, you know, volunteering, they're, they're taking on things at church and their synagogue, and, you know, they're doing all these activities. And so they don't, they feel vibrant and hardy, and they don't perceive themselves as being someone who is at risk. And that's hard to kind of accept. Because this virus, while it does affect people with underlying conditions much worse than, you know, people who don't have an underlying, especially cardiovascular condition, it, you know, it, it still disproportionately affects people who are older, even if they are healthy. And so that's, it's a hard thing to get through there. So I think making sure that you, you kind of talk to your parents or your aunts or uncles, grandparents, whatever it may be, hey, listen, I know that you are healthy and hearty and not in any way like, you know, a bump on a log or whatever, but this virus is different than other ones we've seen. It's, it's just different. So I think that's part of it. I think also part of it is knowing why they, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming in that what I, what I just said there that it has to do with an unwillingness to accept where their age is. But for some, it's not that. For some, it's misinformation that they've seen online. Um, and I think one of the things I, I said to another friend recently their mom was convinced that the virus was some kind of biochemical weapon that was developed by China. And I said, you know, it, don't even try and push back on that because we know from other psychological research that pushing back on conspiracy theories can often make people dig in their heels deeper. So don't tell them it's not. Just say, okay, you know, I, I don't know where it came from exactly. A scientist don't know, so I can't tell you it wasn't a bioweapon. But whoever created it or wherever it came from, it's doing a good job of killing people. So we need to be cautious anyway. So I think kind of it's, it's not like you're directly validating the, what they believe, but you're kind of pushing it to the side because it doesn't it's not really relevant. The point is it kills people. And I think that's, you know, it, it, trying to work within the framework of what their ideology or belief system or value system is, is really important. Although I do want to point out that if you were to make a bioweapon, you'd probably want to kill at least half of the people that were around with it. Yes, it's um, not a very effective one. It's not. And this is just my experience from playing Plague Inc. <laughs> we know that is scientifically valid. <laughs> Absolutely. Another thing I point out in the article is 
Disneyland closed. I, this was kind of the one that hit me the hardest. It, it sounds, it, it doesn't sound like a big deal on the one hand. Disneyland's only closed twice ever. Once was after JFK was shot and once was after 9-11. And both of those were only for one day. So to me, that alone, you know, Walt Disney is not going to forgo all those profits unless they're taking this very seriously. And, and, and seriously, you know, they're not doing that for PR because you're, the amount of money they're losing by being closed, it, it's not a PR decision. You know, they're doing it because it's the right thing to do and they're trying to keep people safe. Um, and I think pointing out like, dude, NBA, MLB, you know, the, the baseball, uh, PGA, the NFL, like, you know, not, not the NFL, the NHL, hockey, all of these professional sports leagues have suspended their play. And dude, Forrest Gump has got it, man. Tom, yeah. Tom, you know, Tom Hanks is indestructible. The guy has done everything. And so I think things like that drive it home a little bit more um, because it's, you know, all these places aren't going to shut down if there's not a really good reason. This is truly an unprecedented situation right now. I want to point out also that if you had not heard, Idris Elba also has coronavirus yeah. um, announced today. Yeah. And by the time some people are listening to this, it could be, you know, other people. Betty White could get it. Mm, that would be awful. You touched a little bit on some of the misinformation about coronavirus that's going around. And your job and our jobs are a little bit different. That your job is that you're a journalist and you you are dedicated to the truth and when as a health journalist to speaking the truth and finding out the truth no matter what that truth is um not saying that my, my job and nathan's job is to just like throw away the truth and talk about vaccines we obviously care about the truth too but our primary focus is to really encourage people to vaccinate. But both of us have something in common, and that's that we really want to make sure that people are getting good information, that they're not making bad health choices because of misinformation or disinformation. Yes, important distinction there too, I think. Exactly. Uh, and so we've all had experiences working in the vaccine sphere as far as stopping that spread of misinformation and disinformation. And I'm wondering from your angle, what lessons do you think we can take from the work we've already done and lend to combating coronavirus and, you know, as far as what people know about it and what people misknow about it? I think one one thing I've already touched on is being cautious and conscientious about how you counter it. When you go at someone head on, they get defensive and that's going to cause them to dig in their heels. Um, I actually earlier today saw some what I will call misinformation because it was it was well meaning, but it was inaccurate. And it, I've seen it going around a lot. It's the one where it says you should gargle with salt water or gargle with warm water uh -huh. and that will um, kill the virus or stop the virus from going into your lungs, which doesn't work because the trachea and the esophagus are different. Um, and saying that it will, you know, if it gets into your stomach, the, the stomach acids will kill it, which doesn't work that way because it's going in through your nasal passages into your lungs. It's a totally different set of tubes there. Um, but people are, they're, they're sharing because they, they, they mean well. They want to feel secure. They want to have a sense of control over their ability to protect themselves. And that's why they're sharing it. And so what I did was I very gently said, 
I didn't say this information's wrong. First of all, I didn't even use the word wrong. I said, this post could use some clarification. And there were things in there that were true, like wash your hands. And I said, I use the word incorrect because incorrect does not, wrong sort of feels accusatory. Mm -hmm. It feels moral. Yeah, it does. It does. And incorrect feels more like, oh, you made a mistake. <laughs> it's, you know, and it is, it is a mistake. The person who was sharing this was not trying to mislead people at all. They were trying to do good. Um, I said, you know, you know, gargling with warm water will help your throat feel better if you have a sore throat, but it's not going to kill the virus. It doesn't have any effect on the virus. And I kind of went through some of the things that were incorrect. And then at the end, I said, I understand the need to share information to try to help people. I think this post would be more helpful if items in it could be corrected. In other words, I didn't say you need to change this post. The word you never showed up in my post. I didn't say this is wrong. I didn't say you're trying to spread misinformation. I didn't even use the word misinformation. I just very kind of gently stated factually, you know, this is incorrect. I think it will benefit people even since you're obviously trying to help people, it's going to benefit them even more if you can make some corrections to this. And so I think that kind of approach it, it, it allows people to feel like, oh, I made a mistake and it's not defensive. I'm not, I'm not accusing them of anything. I'm not implying that they're stupid. I'm not implying they wanted to mislead people. Um, I haven't seen a reply from that person. You know, the point is to be gentle about it and to assume the best intentions when people are sharing things. Um, there is disinformation out there. And it's kind of, I think, I think of the difference as misinformation is when you're trying to help people, but you're just sharing something that's not correct disinformation is an intentional attempt to mislead the different the, the where it gets gray and tricky is that some people think they're sharing something in their best interest but someone else it's disinformation because someone else is trying to mislead but they don't realize that they're being the carrier of it it's almost like they're they're the carrier of a different kind of virus right um a, you know an inaccurate virus or something and that's where it gets tricky um i had an experience earlier today where a couple called me and they are friends of the family and they are they were terrified they were downright terrified and they weren't terrified before you know yesterday because that was before they had received a link that described how this was a bioweapon and how it had been designed by china the us cia was involved i haven't read the link they sent me um the name of the link that they sent me and i'm, I'm not gonna laugh at this it's called ufo spotlight dot wordpress it, it, that is where they were getting their information they sent me this they wanted me to read it and you know i i could make fun of them if i wanted to i could laugh at this because it seems kind of out there but they were genuinely terrified and my job isn't to mock them this feels the whole situation feels scary and unprecedented and it's understandable that when things are scary and unprecedented you want to feel some sense of control and knowing something is happening is a sense of control and so I talked to them about, you know, here's why we know right now that it's not a bioweapon. Yes, I will read this lengthy, you know, description of what happened and I'll get back to you. And so I think, you know, taking people's fears seriously and validating that it's okay to be scared right now is, is the most important thing that you can do. And it's very similar to vaccines in the sense that, you know, it's very scary to take your healthy child into the doctor and have them you know, a couple of needles stuck in them. And there's things in those needles that you don't entirely understand. And it's it's normal to feel anxious about that. Um, that's not crazy that you're not stupid. You're not an anti-vaxxer just because you're scared. And I think simply validating that fear and anxiety is important before you go anything further. 
I'd like to hear, speaking of misinformation, I, I want to hear a little bit about this article you wrote that I'm sorry I haven't read yet, but that's about masking and the response that it got, because I'm getting the sense out there that despite the lack of evidence for masking in the general population, there's a a, a certain subgroup that is very passionate about masking and don't necessarily enjoy being told not to mask and tell us about what your article says and what your experience with this uh, group has been. This is really fascinating to me and I'm going to return to it and, and dig more into it. So the bottom line is that based on the evidence that we have access to in peer-reviewed journals, there is not much evidence suggesting that wearing a mask will protect you from getting sick. Most people seem to agree with that. There, there are some people who thought, well, no, I'll wear an N95 respirator mask and I'll be fine. And they don't realize that you have to have an N95 mask fit specifically to your face and you have uh -huh. to go through training and it has to be properly um, fitted to your face. And you have, you know, you have to wash your hands before you put it on, after you take it off, anytime you touch it, you know, there's a lot of training that goes into that. So put th there is that group, and I'm gonna put that aside for a minute because what I thought was the much more fascinating aspect of this, the ones who were very passionate tended to be people in um, China, Korea, and especially Hong Kong. Um, you know, most people in Hong Kong speak English, so it probably was a factor that most of them were able to read it and interact with me. Um, and they, there's a cultural reality, and this, when I say it's cultural, this is not a negative thing at all. It's actually a solidarity thing. It's a positive thing. Um, when SARS and MERS were going on, but especially SARS, SARS was terrifying in China. And one of the reasons it never made it to the United States was it killed people so quickly, there wasn't chance for it to spread, which is terrifying in and of itself. And that was when a, the mask wearing goes back further than that. But that was when it really became a national thing where people wore masks on a regular basis. And what they were doing was they weren't protecting themselves. They were protecting other people. Mm -hmm. It was about solidarity right. and saying, I'm going to protect you by wearing a mask. And that is when you should wear a mask. If you are coughing, if you have symptoms, if you have a fever, you absolutely should put a mask on and wear it when you're out in public so that you're not infecting other people. That's an appropriate use of a mask. And so what, what it came down to was that people in Hong Kong were basically, I mean, it, it was, their, their passion was very well founded. It was, listen, we're trying to save you. We're trying to help you. You know, you Americans don't want to listen to us. We've been through this before. I, I saw one meme that kind of cracked me up where they said, oh, you've got <laughs> China, you know, China has this disease that started and um, they said, you know, we're all scared. And it's got this meme of this famous actor, I forget who, saying first time, kind of like, you know, oh, so you're a virgin when it comes to, to dealing with diseases <laughs> that start in China. And it cracked me up because they were, they were basically trying to say, listen, man, we've been through this before. We, we've been through the diseases that, that pop up in these markets and, and, and race through and scare us. And we're trying to help you. We want you to survive. And in order to do that, you should all be wearing masks. And their argument is is not wrong exactly. Um, well, it's not wrong, period. It is basically the idea that when you're asymptomatic, when you don't show symptoms, you are you can still be carrying the disease and be contagious during that time. And we do know that you can carry this disease, you can be infected with the coronavirus and, and you know not have the symptoms of COVID-19 um for up to two weeks and not realize that you know you are contagious during that time and the idea is if you wear a mask and if everybody's wearing a mask then it reduces it in the aggregate and that is very sensible the pro there's several problems though one problem is that 
it's already an established cultural practice in Hong Kong and China. Everybody already had masks. They already had high production of masks because they had been there, done that. So the idea of saying everyone pop on a mask was no big deal. Everyone went to the drawer where they had their masks and took them out. They already had them. Whereas in the United States, we have a severe shortage of masks right now. So, you know, we just don't have 350 million masks times each day that this happens because they're going to be disposable masks and you need to be throwing them out at the end of each day. Um, You shouldn't be rewearing them. So that's part of the problem right there is a simple matter of supply and demand. And the demand is very, very high among healthcare workers. And the best thing that we can do as citizens in the United States or residents of the United States is to you know not buy those masks so that the people who need them, sick people and healthcare workers and also construction workers and people like that, have access to them. So the one thing was just conveying that. And that was the point at which a lot of them said, well, you need to ramp up production. Well, yeah, duh. Um, except that the United States doesn't produce those masks. China does. <laughs> so it was trying to explain, you know, there was a couple of discussions on Twitter there about supply chain management. And, you know, you don't just create factories out of thin air and hire workers out of thin air to work overnight. You know, it takes time to ramp up production. So I think that was part of the issue. Another thing, though, is we don't have evidence that everyone wearing a mask will necessarily reduce asymptomatic transmission. It makes sense logically, but there's a lot of things that make sense logically that don't actually bear out when you look at the evidence. Um, That's happened many, many times. That's why you want the evidence for it. And it's a really hard thing to test. A lot of people were trying to say, well, look at our rates, right? Our rates were lower when we wore a mask. And they weren't wrong, but their mask was not worn in a vacuum of behavior. It's possible that wearing a mask was sort of a a proxy indicator of a whole set of behaviors that you adopt. You wear the mask, you wash your hands, you stay away from people, you don't touch your face. That whole constellation of behaviors is kind of associated with the mask. And the kind of person who says, yes, I am going to, you know, do what's right for other people and I'm going to wear this mask, are also washing their hands, staying away from people, not touching their face. And so you can't isolate the mask from those other behaviors that we know for a fact do reduce transmission. Um, You can't do a randomized controlled trial. Uh, It wouldn't be ethical and it it wouldn't even be logistically possible. Um, So that's another challenge. And then finally, there's, you know, they because people in um, China, Korea, Hong Kong have been there, done that and been through this kind of big outbreak that's frightening before, they have the fear of God in them. They know how terrible it can be and they don't have to be persuaded of that. Whereas in the United States, you want to persuade 350 million people to put on a mask and every single person wear them every single day when our entire country was literally founded on, you know, F you got mine, going to do it my way. I'm leaving this country and I'm going to stake my claims over here and manifest. I mean, our entire country is founded on independence and pulling up your bootstraps and, you know, streets of gold and, and making your own living and, you know, the Sooners in Oklahoma and the gold rush. We are not a society that is built on that level of solidarity that you see in some of other countries. And I'm not, I'm not judging either country, any country as being good or bad. It's just a different cultural mindset. So the idea that you're going to tell everyone in America, okay, 350 million people get a mask and wear it every day. It's just not going to happen. And so, you know, whether it does or doesn't impact asymptomatic transmission in other countries, 
it's, it's just not practicable here in the United States. And then the last thing is that there is always a risk that if we tell everyone to wear a mask and they don't know what they're doing because they haven't been trained and that's going to happen, they could actually cause infections because the mask is collecting all those things that are in the air. And if they don't wash their hands before and after taking it off or dispose of it properly, they could actually be creating a surface that is like this little miniature vector that's around their, their mouth that they're, you know, they leave it around. I can, I saw a story about masks washing up in the um, ocean uh, near Taiwan uh, and Hong Kong because people would just dispose of them. You know, there's just so many of them. It's not like people are necessarily littering. It's probably, even if they're throwing away properly, they make their way into the ocean. Can you imagine in a country like this, every person wearing a new mask every day that's disposable, the, you know, the amount of pollution that that would cause. And all of those are little baby vectors <laughs> floating around. So it was a really tricky discussion to have because I can't say they're wrong. You know, if every single person in their country is wearing a mask and they're also washing their hands and they're also practicing physical distancing, which I started saying physical distancing instead of social distancing, because I think that it gets more, it's more accurate, then that may be part of a whole series of behaviors that does reduce transmission. But for the reasons of supply and demand, for the reasons of production, for the reasons of cultural differences and mindsets, for the reasons of pollution and proper training, that's just not practical or wise in the United States. And we never quite could come over, we, we couldn't bridge that gap. And it fascinated me because I knew that they meant well and I was, I meant well and yeah. You know, I think it's really interesting to kind of, I really appreciate you breaking all that down because that is, it's interesting to look at it from a, well, what's actually effective at, at preventing you from catching something, but what could be effective if everybody uh, works together kind of a thing and that kind of catch 22 that we have of not necessarily being able to be at that point. So thanks for clarifying all that for us. I want to write more on this. It's, it's, it's kind of a deep dive, so it'll be a while before I can write it, but um, I think it's worth exploring because the I think you I think we need to be able to discuss cultural differences in the way that disease epidemiology can um, play out without demonizing or put, placing value judgments on either of the any of the cultures involved. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's not that mm -hmm. it's not that they're wrong. It's not that we're wrong. It's not that they're right. It's not that we're right. It's that different factors are involved in different societies in how you treat you know it, it goes back to um actually here's here's a great example i i learned recently that in mozambique um the shaman uh are the, the shaman outnumber the pediatricians by like oh gosh i don't know a thousand to one i mean there's just a, a very small number of pediatricians and there's many 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 of the medicine men the, the shaman in mozambique and there's almost there's very very few neurologists or pediatric neurologists and so what they did in mozambique for kids who have epilepsy is instead of trying to work against the shamans who may be using some you know treatments that are not evidence-based they gathered the shaman together at one of their conventions and the neurologists and the pediatricians taught the shamans how to manage epilepsy. Um, you know, you can't beat them, join them kind of thing. And I think, you know, that would never be, it's not like we have a huge bunch of medicine men here in the United States, but that kind of strategy would not work very well here for all kinds of reasons. And we don't have the shortages in pediatricians and neurologists that they have. But I think it's a good example of how the way that you manage an illness or a disease or the epidemiology or the spread of something 
um, whether it's chronic or it's, or it's infectious, you know, you, ha you can't divorce that from the cultural factors that are, that are involved. So talking about these kinds of issues now in the United States, when a lot of people are, as we know from talking about vaccines, getting a lot of misinformation and disinformation, what are the best sources that you think the people out there need to know about to get good information about COVID-19 and know what to do, what's real, what's not, um, and, and, and basically who should they listen to? I hesitate in giving specific names because we live in such a a partisan time that people have attached belief systems to what different publications represent ideologically. And I, I don't want to make it sound like I am recommending a particular source that is more um that is more, you know, politically to the left, to the right, you know, libertarian, conservative, liberal. So what I what I instead do I will say when you're going to sites like Forbes, like mine, look at the actual author and what they have done. So Forbes, there's a lot of contributors and the contributors come from a wide diversity of different sources. So research the person who's writing it in a place like Forbes. Medium is the same thing. Just, you know, look at who is actually writing it, what their qualifications are. In general, I would say any American mainstream newspaper, and it doesn't matter where it is, um, you know, if the New York Times speaks to you, then, then follow that. Washington Post, um, the Wall Street Journal, the Chicago Tribune, the Miami Herald, the Los Angeles Times, the Dallas Morning News, they are all across the ideological map. But what they all have in common is they're following very similar ethics. They follow the Society of Professional Journalism ethics and they have similar, um, you know, fact-finding uh, uh, strategies and whatnot. So, I tell people to read, you know, any local or major newspaper for the, you know, I'm, I'm not saying there's no mistakes, but for the most part, that's going to be a more reliable source than a lot of websites. Now there's a lot of websites I can recommend. Um, but I, again, I don't want people to assume that they're, they're more liberal conservative or anything in between. Some of the sites I've noticed that I think have been doing a particularly good job. One of them is stat S T A T. Um, that's a medical news site. Stat is really good. Um, Vox has been doing a fantastic explanatory job. They've been doing some good stuff. Um, NPR has some good stuff. Um, if you get most of your news from watching television newscasts, I would say, I, I spoke to someone earlier today about this and I said, think of it like a diet. You don't want to only eat meat or only eat carbs or only eat vegetables, right? You want to have diversity in your diet because you need all different kinds of nutrients for your body. Well, think about it the same way. You want your news diet to have, you know, be, be have enough intellectual nutrients in it. Therefore, you have to diversify it. So if you watch MSNBC, then maybe you should also watch maybe CNN or, um, you know, BBC or, you know, one of the other channels to kind of balance what you're watching. If you watch Fox News, maybe you should also watch CNN. And, and I realize you may not want to, but, you know, you want to see multiple different places are reporting the same information. Because if you see the same thing reported multiple times in different places, the more you see it reported in different reliable places, the more reliable it is overall. So, you know, diversifying your news diet a little bit, I really encourage people to read their online newspapers um, because getting things exclusively from television, television news rarely has the ability to go into the nuances that you need. Um, it, it's not going to focus as, as deep into the stories as it needs to and you might come away with not all the information you need. 
So, you know, ideally most people, if, as long as you've got the literacy to do so, try and read instead. Um, and try and get most of your information from there. And I've, I've mentioned a couple of different sites here, but you know, I don't, I don't want to say anyone should go to any particular site. Those are just ones I remember off the top of my head that have done a good job. Um, and one thing that I think is really impressive is several papers have removed their paywalls. So if you don't currently subscribe to Washington Post and New York Times, for example, you're not going to hit an article limit when you read about coronavirus. They've lifted that article limit and that paywall. Not everybody has done that. Um, I will call out Wall Street Journal and LA Times because they made me angry because they do still have their paywalls up. Um, and I will call them out on that because I think they need to lift them. But um, you know, th those are some good sources in general. I, I want to follow up a little bit on the idea of sources uh, because my work at, as Voices for Vaccines has been hampered a little bit because all of the public health people in the world are very, 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 very busy right now. In fact, Nathan's very busy right now too. So that's why we're recording this at um, Karen Midnight, as I like to call this this evening hour. Uh, <laughs> What happens is that people reach out to the closest thing they can think of as an expert in their personal sphere. I will say in my personal sphere, there is a pain doctor, um, not a doctor who causes pain, but a doctor who treats pain, who has scared the bejeepers out of people, I mean, like like spray down your money with bleach kind of information that sort of overwhelmed everyone and freaked people out. And then they've brought it to me and I've been like, hey, let's calm down. Let's, let's look, let's turn on the TV. Oh, surprise, Tony Fauci's on again. Listen to him. Um, and when Tony Fauci is calming you down, you know that that person was really an alarmist. My point being... <laughs> I'm gonna tell Tony you said that. <laughs> my, my point being, yeah, don't don't tell him. He might take it as a challenge. He might be like, "Oh, who's who's this who's this pain medication doctor in Minnesota? I have to beat." My point being that there are a lot of people who are saying a doctor friend of mine said, and I'm not sure they're understanding like the context of it or all the nuances of it because you know unlike our pediatrician and infectious disease doctors a lot of doctors aren't used to speaking to the public much less the public with nuance and so sort of a two-parter question first part is how the heck are you getting sources right now I, don't, I can't get anyone to talk to me and part two is how do we know how much to t to take in from our own personal experts in our life big questions there um okay i'll, I'll make this fairly fast okay first of all i will say the two people you should be focusing on right now as good sources are anybody who has specialization specifically in infectious disease um, or infection control. Th those are your specialties. And that's, that goes true for whether they're a nurse, whether they are a, a physician, whether they are a researcher, whether they are an epidemiologist. If they're an epidemiologist and they focus on nutrition or obesity, they don't need to be speaking about this. They need to have expertise and a background and specifically in infection control or in infectious disease, okay? Infections, right? Things that, that transmit from one person to another, not chronic stuff. That's the most important thing. How to find those people. Um, first of all, 
I ha I have the advantage in being a journalist that I've developed relationships over my time as a journalist that I there's people I can call on and, and they'll stop what they're doing and talk to me. Um, so that is a, a benefit that I have in that regard. Um, I also, it depends on who I'm writing for. I mean, if, if I'm writing for my blog, they're not going to talk to me. It's because I'm writing for, for Forbes or, or for NPR or, you know, it's the, you know, who I'm writing for that makes a difference. But I will say this, something people don't realize, every single local hospital, they've got someone who specializes in infectious disease at your hospital. They've got someone who specializes in infection control. In fact, they should have somebody whose entire job is focused on making sure that infections like MRSA don't spread throughout your hospital. That is their entire job. Those people are very, very reliable. Um, when I did one of my story, the story I did on masks, the gentleman that I spoke to for that, he's an infection prevention uh, specialist at a hospital in Iowa, actually. So he's in your neck of the woods, Nathan, and he's brilliant. Um, and so I think you can go on, what I do is I go on Twitter and I look for the people on Twitter who are tweeting about these things and maybe they only have 2,000 followers or, or 500 followers or 5,000 followers. They don't have followers in the tens of thousands or the millions. And, but they are an infection prevention specialist or they're an infectious disease epidemiologist or, or they're a physician who treats infectious disease. And, you know, a lot, I was able to speak to an assistant surgeon general of Kansas when I was, you know, who used to work at the CDC because people weren't contacting him because he was in Kansas. Um, so I think, you know, focus on, on flyover states and middle America and the places where you, you've got solid, good, well-educated, experienced people working, and they're just not the ones whose faces you see most often. Now, I say that, and it's going to get trickier soon because some of those people are going to be super busy within their own hospitals, and, and that is going to be a problem. Um, but you've still got epidemiologists who can speak to this and aren't necessarily an epidemiologist that is, you know, on the news or something. Um, so it's it's kind of expanding your search. And the nice thing about expanding your search is you get more diverse search sources. I mean, one of the challenges I have as a journalist, it's really easy to get in touch with a white man. It's super easy. <laughs> yeah. Do you have it noticed in the newspapers? You know, it's an opportunity to say, I'm going to reach out to the Latino woman or Latina woman, excuse me, or to the... Um, you know, the transgender man or, you know, there, there's, there's, ton, there's a huge diversity of people who may not have been reached because they don't, they, they haven't climbed the ladder as easily as others and therefore are not as visible as others, but they're just as smart. They're probably smarter. <laughs> so um, it's an opportunity, I would say. It, 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 means, it means more work on your part. You got to dig further and faster. You got to send more emails. Um, but it is an opportunity, and, and this is a chance for people who have not had that spotlight to shine by saying, look, I can help here too, and I think that's really important. Well, fabulous. I just want to end with a fun question for both of you, and that's that we're supposed to, there's a hashtag, stay home. I like that hashtag because I'm an introvert, and I like living in my pajamas, so it works for me. But for some people, it doesn't. And so we're going to help them out. I want you to tell us what is on your Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, etc. binge watch list. <laughs> Ooh, that's easy. Okay, so Doctor Who and Stranger Things are the two big ones right now. <laughs> okay. um, we're, I think we're all caught up on Doctor Who, so we're waiting for the next one to come out. But um, and then st we're still we're still about I think we're about halfway through the Stranger Things, um, Altered Carbon, which is absolutely not family viewing. But the second season of Altered Carbon has come out, right? 
and uh, I'm looking forward to, to watching that. And then I actually have a list of other things. Um, I Unfortunately, we already watched all of Witcher, so I have to wait for the second season of Witcher, and it's going to be really hard because, man, I am looking forward to seeing that Witcher again. He, I mean, yeah, we'll go on. Um, and... <laughs> I mean, come on, the whole show is eye candy. My husband can stare at the witch, I can stare at the witcher, and we are both happy. Um, so uh, those are my big ones, I guess. <laughs> what we do is we have a movie night every Friday, but we're watching a few more movies, and we've mm -hmm. been doing, let's see, we just finished the Back to the Future trilogy, and uh, my nice. we, we watched the first Lord of the Rings, and so we'll be doing the next two Lord of the Rings. We've done all of Star Wars, mm -hmm. so we focus on the classics in that regard. And then the kids have their. How old are your kids like again? Five days? and nine. And I, oh, I, the Flash. My older son loves okay. the Flash. That's that's how oh, I watch yeah. it. Oh, okay. I, I'm a big fan of the Flash too. It's great. I don't know if you if you feel like your kids are old enough for this or not, but have you watched the uh, Netflix Lost in Space series? I am kind of telling every family with like teens and tweens and maybe a little younger tweens that this is a great show to watch with your fam. There's two seasons of it that you can binge each evening. It's all about families that have struggles and then come together to work under hardship. And I think it's a particularly good show to watch, I think, during kind of uh, physical distancing time because it is another thing where we're all kind of stuck a lot of times you know in a relatively small area with a family that we don't always get along but we have things that we need to do and we all have to pull together and it's I think a really good show for that so that's my main recommendation for families to watch during this time watch Lost in Space on Netflix we, my husband and I started to watch it. I think we watched two episodes, but we mm -hmm. had just finished watching The Expanse, which is my other like favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Expanse is my favorite show in the whole wide world. <laughs> and you mm -hmm. can't really go from watching The Expanse to watching Lost in Space because you're going from like ultra, ultra accurate scientifically yeah. to just very not scientifically <laughs> accurate. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I can I see the show. value of watching it as a family. That's a good idea. Maybe we'll try that. Nice. Okay, well... Um, with that important update, <laughs> I want to thank you for joining us, Tara. And uh, where can we send people to find you if they want to read more of your stuff or bother you on Twitter? Um, the easiest, my, my Twitter handle is my name, which is Tara Haley, H-A-E-L-L-E. -L -L -E. I tell the first name is Tara, so just a rat backwards. Um, <laughs> and my last name is Ha L, as in the magazine. <laughs> um, that's the easiest way to tell people. Uh, so at Tara Haley is my Twitter feed. Um, and I do have a Facebook page. I'm not very active on it, but people can send me things there. Um, and I, you can find my Forbes articles. The easiest thing is just to Google my name and Forbes and it'll pop mm -hmm. up. Perfect. And thank you everybody for listening in to our second coronavirus episode. Again, if you didn't catch the first one, uh, go back to episode 38. It's a, it's a good listen. And I really hope that by the time our 40th episode comes out that we're talking about some other terrible disease. Uh, <laughs> my name is Karen Ernst. I'm the executive director at Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonster. You can find me on Twitter at PedsGeekMD. You can also find me on Facebook and at my blog, PedsGeekMD.com.
All right, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.